Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are talking about drugs. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. If you are new to the program, I want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we are going to be applying legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. And uh, real quick for you guys, I just have a quick announcement. Uh, So I have just... Uh, opened up a PayPal account and a Venmo account uh, for the show. Uh, you can see both the link uh, and the QR code if you want to scan them to go. Uh, if you want to just give a, a one-time donation, just give a tip for a good show, or if you want to uh, throw us a couple bucks monthly, uh, that would be great too, either way. Uh, I'm I'm going to talk to you guys about why I'm starting these accounts now. Uh, at the end of the show, I don't want to get too off course. But I just wanted to make you aware of that. Uh, I've got these things uh, and stick around at the end so I, I can talk with you a little bit when the show is done and uh, explain why this is so important. All right. So it was uh, 102 years ago uh, to the day from the day I'm recording this that the 18th Amendment was ratified. Uh, this made the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors completely prohibited. Uh, that It became the law of the land, and one year later, uh, its companion statute that was meant to enact and enforce that amendment that is known as the Volstead Act went into effect. Now, if you ask any American why only 12 years later the 21st Amendment was passed, uh, which was the sole example in the entire history of our republic where an amendment was ratified for the sole purpose of unamending the Constitution. Uh, And they will all give you a fairly similar and fairly accurate litany of reasons. They'll say you can't legislate morality, uh, you can't escape the natural laws of economic supply and demand, uh, what people can't buy honestly, they will procure illicitly, uh, they will point out that it didn't actually greatly reduce alcohol consumption, but it did increase both corruption and violent crime. Uh, people were regularly poisoned by adulterants, uh, either added by criminals uh, trying to make an extra buck or by the federal government trying to denature alcohol so people didn't drink it. Uh, and I think another big one is uh, that when you have bad laws on the books, people, when you foster disrespect for a bad law, it gives the good laws uh, it, it gives you less reason to want to respect the good laws, I guess you should say. But despite this fairly universal comprehension of the failures of prohibition, uh, which, if you stop and think about it, had everything to do with human nature and market forces and nothing to do with alcohol per se, uh, really there's no reason to assume that what holds true with alcohol would not hold true with marijuana, cocaine, heroin, anything. And yet, you will find a sizable minority of people across the country, uh, from law and order conservative types uh, to NPCs to all manner of Karens, 
that will just uh, make the make up our current nanny state uh, who will insist that they know how to run your lives better than you do. And they will insist that our current drug prohibition is something uh, that is a good thing, despite the fact that you can find superfluous examples of the very same ills that brought prohibition of alcohol to an end. Uh, and they seem unconcerned about this. Uh, and they they don't seem to be too concerned with the stupid choice that they have made, which is to uh, not pass a constitutional amendment uh, before they implemented uh, drug prohibition, which we obviously needed for alcohol. So why it wouldn't be the same for drugs, I have no idea. Now, uh, for me, personally, all it takes to understand the follies of drug ho drug prohibition uh, is a knowledge of the principles of libertarian ethics, which are individual liberty, self-ownership, and the non-aggression principle. And since actions are the result of conscious choice, individuals have ownership rights over their person, and they and they alone have the sole liberty to decide how they use their body. Now, applied practically, self-ownership manifests itself in the non-aggression principle and the free market, that no individual or group of individuals may forcibly restrict liberty unless they themselves violate the non-aggression principle by aggressing against others. This means that the only crimes that should be crimes are things like theft, rape, murder, fraud, pollution, things that hurt other people. The non-aggression principle is universal. It treats everyone as equal before the law, and it does not excuse you if you call yourself something else, such as the IRS or the DEA or the U.S. government or a corporation. It doesn't matter. So a simple application of this philosophy says that drugs should be decriminalized, not due to the horrendous legacies of drug prohibition, or to all the necessarily positive aspects that we can find in places like Portugal that have had fantastic results with decriminalization. But because you own your body and you have the right to put whatever you want into it. Now, I'm not saying you should do drugs. I'm, I'm certainly not saying that at all. Uh, I'm not, you know, nor would I uh, encourage you to smoke cigarettes, drink alcohol, drink soda, or eat fatty foods. But no one may legally deny you that right. Without choice, there can be no virtue. To tell someone what they can and cannot consume, to me, is uh, just as deplorable as telling them what they can or can't read. However, I understand my sort of a priori reasons uh, are not as persuasive to others as they are necessarily for me, but fortunately... The historical truth of drug uh, and alcohol prohibition entirely back my point up if you need a utilitarian argument. So why don't we get into that? Now, I, uh, to be honest, I really <laughs> doubt anyone can seriously believe that the unintended negative externalities of alcohol prohibition don't apply to today's drug war. But sincere or not, since that doubt is still sometimes claimed, uh, I want to discuss dis different aspects of alcohol prohibition and the consequences of its enactment, of its enactment, as well as its repeal, and take this information 
and use it to discuss what relevance it might have today with our modern prohibition that we now know as the War on Drugs. So to begin to comprehend the enormity of the failure of this political and legal clusterfuck, let's contemplate a few statistics who I think it, their importance is self-evident. So for one, the war on drugs has cost American taxpayers a total of $2.5 trillion. The annual cost alone is at, very, at the very minimum $47 billion. In 2018, uh, for violations of federal drug laws, uh, we had 1,654,282 arrests. Of these, 1,429,299 were merely for possession. That means 86% of all drug arrests are simply for possession. Now, in 2018, arrests for marijuana were about, uh, well, not about, exactly 663,367. That's 47% of all drug arrests. And of these, 608,775 were solely for possession of marijuana. That means 92% of all marijuana arrests are for possession of marijuana alone. If you consider that marijuana is 40% of all drugs, it's just, I mean, it's unbelievable that we're locking people up for this. Now, what even I think is more incredible is that uh, in 2018, when I'm getting these statistics from, they're the latest ones I can get, uh, nine states and the District of Columbia had made recreational marijuana legal, and a, a further 13 states had decriminalized marijuana possession. Uh, and at that point, there were only four states that didn't have either recreational uh, legalization uh, decriminalization, or medical marijuana. So, let's consider the interests, uh, the people, and the reasons for the 18th Amendment's passage and its repeal in the 21st Amendment. Now, you are no doubt familiar with a saying first attributed to absolutely one of my favorite individuals in all of history, uh, and it is the, the tragically uh, misunderstood Florentine bureaucrat Machiavelli when he said, never waste the opportunity offered by a good crisis. And this came with our entry into World War I, uh, which gave the federal government great control over the country's agricultural production and provided uh, sort of utilitarian ammunition to prohibitionists who uh, were ticked off that pounds of grain were being lost uh, to brewing and that there was hours being wasted in saloons when those, that time could have been spent making bullets and bayonets. Now, various acts and measures had whittled down alcohol production, including the Wartime Prohibition Act of 1918, which was signed into law 10 days after the armistice on November 11th. It was at this war t in this wartime atmosphere, uh, after, uh, excuse me, it was in this wartime atmosphere of privation, sobriety, and xenophobia, uh, really mostly towards all things German, uh, including German-American brewers and their products, that Congress passed a constitutional amendment prohibiting the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors, 
and sent it to the states for ratification. On January 16, 1919, Nebraska became the 36th state to ratify the 18th Amendment, uh, and of the 48 states that existed at the time, only Connecticut and Rhode Island declined to give their approval by amendment, or excuse me, by voting to ratify said amendment. So this enactment went into effect exactly one year later. Uh, the National Prohibition Enforcement Act uh, was introduced by Representative Andrew Volstead from my home state of Minnesota, uh, but was written by the Anti-Saloon League's general counsel, a gentleman named Wayne Wheeler. And this is what gave teeth to the amendment, banning any beverage with an alcohol content of 0.5% or greater, and establishing a Bureau of Prohibition within the Internal Revenue Service responsible for enforcement. Prohibition, of course, did not stop drinking in the United States, although per capita alcohol consumption did drop sharply in the early years of Prohibition. By the latter half of the 1920s, it had rebounded to 60 and eventually 70% of pre-Prohibition levels, and it remained there fairly steady uh, before and after repeal. Now, certainly crime did not decrease. Uh, according to one study, uh, crime in 30 major cities increased 24% between 1920 and 1921. In Philadelphia alone, drunkenness, uh, uh, yeah, drunkenness-related arrests nearly tripled from 20,433 in 1920 to 58,517 in 1925. The national homicide rate climbed from about 7 per 100,000 people in 1919 to 10 per 100,000 in 1933, and uh, it, it dropped sharply again back to uh, pre-prohibition levels once the amendment was repealed. Now, domestic moonshine and industrial alcohol provided the majority of alcohol consumed during prohibition. Moonshiners would distill neutral grain spirits in hidden stills and then attempt to mimic the color and flavor of whiskey or gin with additives called conagers. Industrial alcohol, though denatured by the government in order to make it undrinkable, was typically repassed through a still to remove the poisons, but this was not always successful. Thus, between 1925 and 1929, 40 out of every 1 million Americans died from toxic liquor. The decisions of the state and federal government to outlaw the manufacture, sale, and transportation of most alcohol in the United States was really born out of mostly racism, nativism, uh, government paternalism, and moralizing religiosity. But prohibition also failed on its own terms. Instead of putting a stop to problem drinking, it criminalized it, making it more dangerous in the process. Prohibition created a violent black market for alcohol that helped empower and enrich violent criminals in the process. Problem drinkers continued to imbibe. Many drinkers switched from relatively low-proof beer to the much higher-proof alcohol because that was more available because it was much easier to transport. Now, to see under Prohibition uh, how common drinking still was, let's take a look at this map uh, of Harlem from 
Uh, this is a map of Harley's speakeasies. All it, all those green dots that you see on the screen there are all these speakeasies uh, that were in the borough of Harlem uh, in 1932, which suggests that boozy nightlife was flourishing. But black market liquor was more expensive, lower quality, and often dangerous to drink. Some producers used methyl alcohol uh, in small quantities. This made watered-down liquor taste more potent. In slightly larger doses, it could blind and even kill the consumer. Now, some moonshiners used automobile radiators that had lead in them to condense the alcohol vapors, leading to lead poisoning. And with little in the way of branding, consumers were unable to tell it a reliable product from a dangerous one. And since producers had to keep their work hidden from the view of the authorities, uh, this necessity bred vast corruption as bootleggers paid off government officials, effectively making police and politicians, many of whom continued to drink themselves, partners in their illegal operations. This in turn obviously bred distrust in the government, uh, which was plainly hypocritical in its operation. In early 1930, the Outlook and Independent magazine wrote, quote, The Metropolitan Life Insurance Company has published the fact that the alcoholic death rate among their 19 million policyholders has increased nearly 600% in the last 10 years, double what it was in 1918, and approximately the same as what it was in the preceding years. This removes the last doubt from the mind of any reasonable person at the time that it is time to repeal the 18th Amendment. Uh, that's the end of the article quote there. So during Prohibition, the death rate from acute alcohol poisoning due to overdose was more than 30 times higher than today. In 1925, 280 Federal agents were assigned to prevent smuggling across the United States, uh, but we have 3,700 miles of land borders. And the Wickershire Commission noted that to effectively prevent smuggling across these borders would have required about five or six times as many agents. A top federal enforcement official estimated that in 1925, only about 5% of all smuggled liquor was ever intercepted. For today's policymakers and policy influencers, prohibition remains a cautionary tale about government overreach. It was a dysfunctional and badly run system predicated on ugly populist notions and deluded ideas about the power of government to solve social problems. Not only did it fail to accomplish its goals, it created a host of unintended consequences that were worse than the problems that they were supposed to solve. These straightforward lessons of prohibition are obviously applicable to any number of public policy situations making headlines today, from the opioid crisis to marijuana legalization and even to things such as immigration. And our elected leaders would be wise to heed them. So, yes, the anniversary of prohibition is a warning of all the ways that government policies can go wrong. And the lasting damage, the worst of those policies can do. But its eventual reversal 
and Tainted Legacy also does offer reasons for hope. Prohibition's end is a reminder that the very worst policies, no matter their scale, aren't locked in place and we aren't stuck with them forever. Now, you will uh, very often uh, nowadays hear protesters talking about how America's criminal justice system is unfair, and that's because it is. Uh, courts are so jammed that innocent people plead guilty to avoid waiting years for a trial. Lawyers help rich people get special treatment. A jail stay is just as likely to teach you crime as it is to help you get a new start in life. Overcrowded prison costs a fortune and increases suffering for both the prisoners and the guards. There's one simple solution to most of these problems. End the war on drugs. Now, our government has spent trillions of dollars trying to stop drug use. It hasn't worked. More people now use more drugs than before the war on drugs began. What drug prohibition did do is exactly what alcohol prohibition did 100 years ago. Increase the conflict between police and citizens. I would also say made uh, alcohol more appealing. Uh, the great quote from Mark Twain uh, talking about prohibition where he says, the specialness is not in uh, the thing itself, but it is in the prohibiting of the thing that makes it special. So, what has happened is this has increased conflict between police and citizens. Uh, it has pitted police against communities that they serve. Uh, now, neuroscientist Carl Hart, who is the former chair of Columbia University's psychology department, grew up in a Miami neighborhood excuse me, where he watched crack cocaine wreck lives. When he started researching drugs, he assumed that research would confirm how bad the damage that drugs did, or how much damage drugs did, I should say, excuse me. But, as he says, one problem kept cropping up. He says uh, in uh, his soon-to-be-coming-up book, known as Drug Use for Grown-Ups Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear, he says that, quote, the evidence did not support the hypothesis. No one else's did either. After 20 years of research, he concluded, I was wrong. Now, he says, our drug laws do more harm than the drugs. Because drug sales are illegal, profits from selling drugs are huge. Since sellers can't rely on law enforcement to protect their property, they buy guns and form gangs. Now, no doubt cigarettes harm people too, but there are no violent cigarette gangs. There are no cigarette shootings. Even though nicotine uh, is uh, supposedly more addictive than heroin, at least according to our government. That's because tobacco is legal. Likewise, there are no longer violent liquor gangs. Those vanished when prohibition ended. But what about the opioid epidemic? Lots of Americans die from overdoses. 
Uh, and actually, going back to Carl Hart, he uh, directly blames this on the drug war, too. Yes, opioids are legal, but their sale is tightly restricted. If drugs were over-the-counter, and this is quoting Carl Hart, he said, quote, uh, if drugs were over-the-counter, there would be fewer deaths. People die from opioids because they get tainted opioids. That would go away if we didn't have this war on drugs. Imagine if the only subject of any conversation about driving automobiles was fatal car crashes. So it is with the opioid epidemic. Drugs do harm many people, but in real life, and this is going back to Hart again, he said, quote, I know tons of people who do drugs. They are public officials, captains of industry, and they're doing well. Drugs, including nicotine and heroin, make people feel better. That's why they are used, end quote. Now, President Eisenhower warned us about the military-industrial complex. I would, I would say that America's drug war funds a prison-industrial complex. Hart says uh, his years inside a well-funded research institute on the side uh, of that complex issue showed him that any research not in support of the tough-on-drugs ideology is routinely dismissed to keep outrage stoked. Stoked, excuse me. America locks up more than 200, excuse me, I'm sorry, more than 2 million, 2 million Americans. America locks up more than 2 million Americans. Uh, that is a higher percentage of citizens, uh, and it is uh, disproportionately black citizens uh, than any other country in the world. Uh, in every country with a more permissive drug regime, all outcomes are better, says Hart. Countries like Switzerland and Portugal, where drugs are decriminalized, don't have these problems that we have with drug overdoses. In 2001, Portugal decriminalized all drug use. Instead of punishing drug users, they offered help. Death from overdoses dropped sharply in 2017. Portugal had only four deaths per million people. The United States had 217 deaths per million people. In a society, says Hart, you will have people who misbehave, but that doesn't mean you should punish all of us because some of us can handle a certain activity. Now, speaking about the opioid epi epidemic, uh, this one is very personal for me, and it, it really uh, makes me mad, um, to be honest. Uh, the fact is, the U.S government's current strategy of trying to restrict the supply of opioids for non-medical use is not working. While government efforts to reduce the supply of opioid, uh, excuse me, uh, research shows that uh, the increase is due in part to substitution of illegal heroin uh, and for now much harder to get prescription opioids. Attempting to reduce overdose deaths by doubling down on this approach will not produce better results. The U.S. government's current strategy of trying to restrict the uh, supply of opioids for non-medical use is not working. The Centers for Disease Control uh, found that in 2015, 33,091 uh, 
people died from opioid overdoses. More than half were from heroin. In 2016, the drug overdose death rate uh, had increased to 28%. It had increased 28% to a total of 42,249, with heroin and fentanyl causing the majority of those deaths. And the rate of fentanyl plus fentanyl alcohol or fentanyl uh, analog overdoses has doubled from 2015 to 2016. In August 2018, the preliminary estimates for 2017 were released showing the opioid overdose rate increasing again to over 49,000, primarily due to a 37% increase in deaths involving fentanyl. Overdoses in 2017 from prescription drugs dropped 2%, and overdoses from heroin dropped 4%. A study published in November 2017 finds that while government efforts to reduce the supply of legal opioids has reduced the availability of common prescription drugs like hydrocodone or oxycodone, the use of heroin, as in initiating opioid for non-medical users, has grown at an alarming rate. In 2015, more than 33% of heroin addicts entering treatment uh, initiated their non-medical opioid use with heroin. Now, this is up from 8.7% in 2005. Part of this effect may be economic. In 2015, the CDC director estimated that the black market price for heroin was one-fifth the price of prescription opioids. The gradual substitution of heroin for prescription opioids may be behind these soaring overdoses. The research concluded that given the given that opioid novices have a limited limited tolerance to opioids, a slight imprecision in dosing uh, inherent in all heroin use is likely to be an important factor contributing to the growth in heroin related overdose fatalities in recent years. Now, the Drug Enforcement uh, Administration actively prevents patients from getting the prescription painkillers they need. It started doing this back in the 1970s when the DEA's reporting requirement made many doctors decide to stop prescribing painkillers altogether. Why go through the hassle of ordering triplicate forms and turning them over to the government. Many other people just simply stopped out of fear. The DEA sent armed men to arrest Ronald Bloom, the associate director of New York University's Kaplan Comprehensive Cancer Center. It turns out he had done nothing wrong other than accidentally filling out a form incorrectly. This mistake cost him 10 in legal fees. Even in 1973, pain under treatment was endemic. According to psychiatrist Richard M. Marks and Edward Sacker, uh, who wrote uh, in the February edition of Annals of Internal Medicine, when government makes it illegal to take drugs, it is attempting to suppress human nature. And in that, it cannot succeed, but only make the problem worse. Uh, now, there are many people who could have received 
legally prescribed heroin who would have been ingesting safe doses with clean needles from a provider who would have no incentive to boost their profits in an unethical way by lacing it with fentanyl. The provider would have been a legally sanctioned company that would be shut down by the government if it provided a product that was something other than what it was advertised to be. For to do otherwise would be committing fraud on its customers, which in and of itself is a rights violation. By way of example on how this would work in 2015, uh, the Peanut Corporation of America knowingly sold peanuts contaminated with salmonella, leading to some deaths. This company no longer exists, and its president is now serving a 28-year sentence. However, in the black drug market, there is no such legal recourse or protection. When you are operating outside the law, there is no market incentive to provide a safe and affordable alternative product. Adulteration of heroin with fentanyl is currently the most dangerous threat to the lives of drug users in the United States. But even if a user does not die from an overdose, there are many other harmful consequences. Uh, these obviously include violent crime, the spread of AIDS, and the legal consequences that can prevent the user from ever having any hope of getting a decent job, housing, or education. Just ask anyone with a criminal record for a non-violent drug conviction how hard it is to get a good job with a future so that they can provide for themselves and their family. Once out of prison, such individuals easily fall prey to the neighborhood drug culture from whence they came and must steal or prostitute themselves to maintain their habit. Ironically, the huge upsurge in recent years of heroin use and death uh, can uh, be laid at the feet of yet another government policy gone bad. And this is the greater restriction on legal opioids. As legal opioids became harder to come by for people with legitimate chronic pain, the black market in opioids became prohibitively expensive or next to impossible to find, leading users to seek the much cheaper and more readily available heroin. And this is precisely what happened. The United States has some of the most draconian restrictions on the sale and use of recreational drugs. Our government spends billions annually uh, in interdiction of uh, drug use, in criminal prosecution, and incarceration. This has fostered the creation of a huge, violent criminal underclass which has corrupted government both here and abroad. Innocent bystanders often die in the crossfire of rival gangs, while innocent citizens die at the hands of their own police in drug busts that have gone horribly wrong. In the process, law enforcement has become addicted, uh, so to speak, to the constitutionally unlawful practice of padding their budgets with civil asset forfeiture. Even if the property owner whose assets were seized was not convicted of any crime. Meanwhile, the lure of easy money uh, in ghettos often entices youth to forego a legal occupation where they spend much of their adult life incarcerated instead. Annually, there are 
million arrests, or drug possession for personal use. Now, fortunately, there are some real-world alternatives to the dominant approach of criminalization and harsh enforcement in the United States. In 1999, Portugal had the highest rate of drug-related AIDS and the second-highest rate of HIV in the entire European Union. In response, it decided in 2001 to decriminalize drug use, and the results have been dramatic. The number of people voluntarily entering treatment programs rose dramatically, while the number of HIV infections, drug overdoses, and incarceration rates, and cases of AIDS have all plummeted. The Portuguese model, while uh, unfortunately falling short of full legalization for adults, does provide empirical data to support a policy which treats drug use as a health problem rather than a crime. Its approach is to offer treatment rather than incarceration, to make stereo syringes readily available, uh, possession for small amounts in personal use are not prosecutable, but trafficking in large quantities which causes death or serious body harm carries prison sentences, similar in concept to the uh, peanut butter example I just cited earlier. To give some examples of how the Portuguese model has fared versus the U.S. one, consider the following statistics. Overdose deaths in Portugal declined by 80% after decriminalization. 80%. In 2017, more than 72,000 people died from drug overdoses in the United States, which equates to a rate of 21.7 per 100,000. But in Portugal, in 2015, there were only three overdose deaths per 100,000. Making the U.S. death rate from overdoses more than six times that of Portugal's. Incarceration rates for drug offenses in Portugal has fallen by 40% from 1999 to 2016. And Switzerland is yet another example of how a less draconian approach to drug use has yielded some significant beneficial results. In the 1990s, whole sections of uh, the most beautiful cities in the country, uh, such as Zurich and Bern, were overrun with drug users who lived in unsanitary tent cities that were dubbed needle parks, where rates of infection and deaths from sharing needles soared. In response, the Swiss implemented one of the most controversial drug policies in the world, which included dispensing heroin and providing treatment programs, which in turn resulted in a dramatic reduction in death, crime, and an end to those notorious needle parks. Now, opioid-related deaths declined by 64% in the past two decades there, while the number of people testing positive for HIV dropped from 3,000 in 1986 to fewer than 500 in 2017. In short, the Swiss adopted the approach of fighting heroin with heroin, you could say. Not surprisingly, Switzerland does not have the same fentanyl problems as the United States. That's because addicts who obtain heroin from the state know exactly what's in it and have no incentive to get it 
on the streets. In fact, the street business has dwindled to nothing as the program instituted by the Swiss has made its existence obsolete. Other benefits include a huge drop in opioid-related crimes. In 1993, the country had about 20,000 cases a year. Today, the average is 5,000 cases annually. Even more stunning was the decline in burglaries. According to uh, M. Savary, a Swiss drug and harm reduction expert, quote, we reduced theft from burglaries by 98%. It sounds like a miracle, but you can do it, end quote. In the United States, there is a presumption that someone who is addicted to heroin is unable to function as a productive citizen. Yet, as we can see by the results in Portugal and Switzerland, it is the illegalization of heroin which makes that the case, because to procure heroin or other potentially lethal drugs on the black market, the addict is always hustling to get their next fix from uncertain and unreliable sources. If legally and safely obtained in a clinical environment, the addict receives a maintenance dose which allows him or her to function normally and fully, capa uh, fully capable of handling odd day-to-day responsibilities such as a job or raising a family. Now, I can personally attest to many of the issues here that are being caused by the government. They have made it so exceedingly difficult for doctors to qualify for and treat patients with certain uh, very effective opioid agonist therapies. This is uh, a process that involves uh, giving an addict a much safer alternative to the sometimes unreliable and often deadly effect of street drugs whose potency is and safety is hard to determine. So with drugs like buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist, uh, which is very good at treating the crippling withdrawal symptoms of opioid withdrawal, uh, buprenorphine works especially well to treat the physical and psychological withdrawal uh, and has very little sedating effect and is usually prescribed with an opiate antagonist called naloxone. And when, they, when you mix these two chemicals together into one medication, which is called suboxone, uh, the naloxone has no effect when taken orally. But if snorted or injected, the naloxone prevents the buprenorphine from binding to the receptors and therefore will not provide uh, the withdrawal relief the medicine was prescribed to give. But ever-tightening and almost draconian controls by the FDA and the DEA, specifically for buprenorphine prescribers who must be specially certified to be able to even write a prescription for it, means patients who seek out this option to get clean find it literally, and I mean literally, impossible to find a doctor qualified to treat them who doesn't have a full patient roster. What I mean by that is that one of these regulation limits is on the number of patients that any buprenorphine prescriber can treat at once. They may only take on 100 buprenorphine patients at any given time, preventing them from taking more patients. Uh, even if they could handle a larger caseload. 
This insertion into the doctor-patient relationship can force the doctor to have to betray the cardinal rule of the Hippocratic Oath, which is first do no harm. I submit that if a doctor can handle a caseload of 200 buprenorphine patients in a responsible and an ethical manner, but are capped at 100, this does tangible harm to the 100 addicts who want help and cannot find the help they want. Now, this is nothing compared to the harm that is being done through the DEA's classification of a drug known as Ibogaine as a Schedule One controlled substance. Now, for those of you who don't know, this means that it is a drug that has uh, a high rate of abuse and supposedly zero medical benefit and cannot be prescribed or used in any manner for any purpose. However, this drug is amazing at treating opioid addictions, but it is not an opioid agonist. In fact, it's not an opiate at all. Uh, it is a very intense psychotropic drug, and how it works is that a single dose of Ibogaine takes away the craving for opiates, the psychological stress caused by craving for opiates, and will often entirely take away the very real physically crippling effects of opioid withdrawal and will continue to maintain these benefits from that single use for as much as six months, at which point your body has gotten past the psychologically crippling effects of opioid withdrawal. Now, this is not a panacea and it doesn't do the work for you. Often, after six months, one may find that the emotional and mental craving for opioids can return but if one takes advantage of the six-month window, and they can begin to seek therapy, find support groups, and get back to some kind of normal, healthy, and productive life. Even people who have a history of trying and failing many times to get clean over a long period of time, uh, have, uh, who have a real long history of relapse, tend to find uh, that this window of clarity and normalcy that is offered by Ibogaine uh, use uh, is really, that, that this is really a gift to them that gives them the chance to be successful. Now, furthermore, uh, Ibogaine is used in New Zealand, Mexico, Canada, Australia, Spain, Brazil, and even several other countries. Uh, and it is used as a treatment, like uh, I am describing, for opioid addiction. It's been used for several decades uh, with, the, with amazing results of people having the same uh, experiences generally that I described of having that six-month window of being completely free of both withdrawal and addiction and cravings. And our government calls this a Schedule 1 controlled substance, lacking any medical benefit whatsoever. I'm sorry, can there be any doubt that the government is as responsible for the creation and exacerbation of the epidemic as the addict is responsible for his own individual addiction? There is, however, reason for hope. As our government gets bigger, it also gets lazier. 
the first prohibitionist new federal alcohol laws required a constitutional amendment. But today, uh, where we have a government who will spend more and more money, but no longer pass a budget, just continuing resolutions that keep us lurching from one financial cliff and debt ceiling to the next, they did something similar for drugs. They have made it illegal, but not unconstitutional. And this it helps provide the, the states a way to fight back, and that is by reclaiming their sovereignty and pointing out to the national government that the Tenth Amendment is crystal clear when it says that the powers not delegated to the federal government by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. This has created a legal remedy that is known as the anti-commandeering doctrine. Given that the federal government was intended to limit its actions to constitutionally delegated powers and all other authority was left to the states and the people as per the Tenth Amendment. But how can we use this to hold the federal government in check? How do we stop them from exercising powers not delegated? Well, we have a great blueprint. Uh, for example, a uh, good place to start is with James Madison uh, in Federal 46. Madison offered a number of actions, but most, most significantly suggested a refusal to cooperate with the officers of the Union would impede federal overreach. He said, should an unwarrantable measure of the federal government be unpopular in particular states, which would seldom fail to be the case, or even a warrantable measure be so, which may sometimes be the case, the means of opposition are powerful and they are at hand. The disquietude of the people, their repugnance and perhaps refusal to cooperate with officers of the Union. The frowns of the executive magistracy of the state, the embarrassment created by legislative devices would often be added on such occasions and would oppose in any state a very serious impediment. And where the sentiments of several adjoining states happen to be in the Union would present obstructions with the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter. Now, anti-commandeering comes from that, and it is a uh, long-standing Supreme Court doctrine. In a nutshell, what the anti-commandeering doctrine does is prohibit the federal government from commandeering state personnel or resources for federal purposes. In effect, the federal government is constitutionally prohibited from requiring states to use their personnel or resources to enforce federal laws or implement federal programs. State and local government cannot directly block federal agents from enforcing federal laws or implementing federal programs, but they do not have to cooperate with the feds in any way. Now, the anti-commandeering doctrine rests on five landmark Supreme Court cases. The first one dates back to 1842. It is known as Prigg versus Pennsylvania. In this, Justice Joseph Story held that the federal government could not force states to implement or carry out the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. He said that it was a federal law and the federal government ultimately had to enforce it. 
Specifically, he said the fundamental principle applicable to all cases of this sort would seem to be that where the end is required, the means are given. And where the duty is enjoined, the ability to perform, it is contemplated to exist on the part of the functionaries to whom it is entrusted. The clause is found in the National Constitution and not in that of any state. It does not point out any state functionaries or any state action to carry its provisions into effect. The states cannot, therefore, be compelled to enforce them, and it might well be deemed an unconstitutional exercise of the powers of interpretation to insist that the states are bound to provide means to carry into effect the duties of the national government, nowhere delegated or instructed to them by the Constitution. The next case uh, that touches on this uh, was a case, New York v. United States from 1992. And in this case, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor wrote for the majority in the 6-3 decision, As an initial matter, Congress may not simply commandeer the legislative process of the states by directly compelling them to enact or enforce a federal regulatory program. Uh, the next case uh, is Prince v. United States. This was a case from 1997. Uh, this really serves as the linchpin for the anti-commandeering doctrine. And it says, uh, Today, we hold that Congress cannot circumvent that prohibition by conscripting the state's uh, officers directly. The federal government may neither issue directives requiring the states to address particular problems nor command the state's officers or those of their political subdivisions to administer or enforce a federal regulatory program. It matters not whether policymaking is involved and no case-by-case -case weighing of the burden or benefits is necessary. Such commands are fundamentally incompatible with our constitutional system of dual sovereignty. Now, the next case uh, that covers this is the 2012 uh, Obamacare case of NFIB versus Sebelius. And it said that the Constitution has never been understood to confer upon Congress the ability to require the states to govern according to Congress's instructions. Uh, and it uh, quotes New York v. United States and says, Otherwise, the two-government system established by the framers would give way to a system that best power in one central government and individual liberty would suffer. And the final case uh, is a fairly recent one, actually. It's uh, Murphy versus NCAA. This was a 2018 case. Uh, in this case, the court held that Congress can't take any action that dictates what a state legislature may or may not do, even when the state action conflicts with federal law. Now, Samuel Alito wrote uh, about a more direct affront to state sovereignty could not be easily imagined. So he said, The anti-commandeering doctrine may sound arcane, but it is simply the expression of a fundamental structural decision incorporated into the Constitution, i.e., the decision to withhold from Congress 
the power to issue orders given directly to the states. Conspicuously absent from the list of powers given to Congress is the power to issue direct orders to the governments of the states. The anti-commandeering doctrine simply represents the recognition of this limit on congressional authority. Now, in fact, ultimately, constitutionality is not even an issue, at least when it comes to the anti-commandeering doctrine. However, since constitutional amendments do require three-quarters of all state legislatures to ratify, to make it part of the Constitution, uh, it is much more likely that with a constitutional amendment, states would feel compelled to act, even if they don't have to. But constitutional or not, they don't have to help the federal government, and the federal government can't try and make them. Uh, this is actually uh, something that I uh, got into with Mike Meharry of the Tenth Amendment Center uh, a while ago when I had him on the show, and our conversation made its way over to the war on drugs. So I just want to play that little bit for you guys here. The uh, whole COVID thing is, had, had derailed that. So maybe we'll see that move along next year. But it's the same principle and you can apply it to anything. Uh, and, and the best example, obviously, is marijuana. You know, the federal government will still tell you that marijuana is absolutely prohibited in the United States for any purpose and any reason. Yeah. Uh, 33 states now have legal mar uh, mar uh, legal marijuana programs, uh, whether they be medical or, uh, in the case of 11 states, complete recreational um, marijuana legalization. So, you know, yeah. I can drive down, if, if I have a medical marijuana card, which I do, I can actually drive down to the store and go pick up marijuana and nice. this is completely illegal according to the federal government. Uh, the problem the federal government has is it can't enforce it. When you have 33 states not enforcing your will, the federal government can't do it. They don't have the, right. the, the manpower. They don't have the resources and the personnel. And I can give you an example. Back when Colorado legalized, medical, uh, legalized marijuana for recreational purposes, right before that was going to go into effect, like two or three weeks, the DEA conducted this huge raid in Denver on, I think it was 12 medical marijuana dispensaries. And, and basically it was a big arm flexing thing. You know, we're going to show them that we still oh. have control over this. Okay. Yeah. So they shut down these 12 dispensaries. And as it turns out, they made a huge deal out of this. I mean, it was in the news and, you know, it was like, like the, one of the biggest simultaneous federal drug, blah, blah, blah. As it turns out, there are about 400 at the time. There were about 400 medical marijuana dispensaries in Denver. And if you do the math, there's actually figures that will tell you how much money it costs to uh, put together a, a marijuana raid and then prosecute it. And I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. But in effect, in order to shut down all of the dispensaries just in Denver, it would require virtually the entire DEA budget for a year. Oh, so you see that personnel and resource problem. And again, when you think about a drug raid, you know, if you've ever watched one, you've seen a video or seen it on TV, you have two DEA agents and 47 local cops and sheriffs. Right. Well, when you take away the 47 local cops and sheriffs, those two DEA agents, you know, they get a little, they get a little bit more reluctant to go, uh, to go blaming into places. So, right. you know, this, this really demonstrates the problem that the federal government has uh, with personnel and resources.
And the beauty of all of this to kind of tie back to what we were talking about before is it really nullification doesn't necessarily require having a politician with a particular uh, liberty philosophy to pull off. You can do it in terms of single issue coalitions. Uh, so you can bring people together who may not have any desire to, you know, have liberty in the big picture, but yeah. say they. So, uh, this is why only four states in the nation uh, have not either legalized or decriminalized marijuana. Now, in fact, uh, in the 2020 election, I think, I, I always love it uh, every time a politician gets elected and they say that we've been given a mandate, um, which is garbage, um, but... Uh, if in the 2020 election, if anything got a mandate, it was that the states are sick and fucking tired of federal drug laws. There were nine state ballot initiatives to nullify federal drug laws, and they all passed. Full legalization, not just decriminalization, full legalization of marijuana passed in Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota. Or, excuse me, it passed in Arizona, Montana, and New Jersey. Uh, South Dakota made both recreational and medical marijuana legal. Uh, ma magic mushrooms became entirely legal in Oregon. Uh, and it, what is one of the most incredible state ballot initiatives to ever be passed in nullifying the drug war was Oregon's Measure 110, uh, which decriminalized the possession of all drugs. Yeah, all drugs. Now, I still remember when California became the very first state to decriminalize marijuana. It, it has only taken some... 10 years for the states to make federal marijuana laws completely unenforceable. And with any luck, I think Measure 110 out of Oregon has provided that same kind of first push that will get the ball rolling on making this entire drug war an entirely unenforceable failure within the next decade. Seriously, good job, Oregon. I don't have a lot of nice things to say about you, but in this case, you are fucking awesome. And these drug measures didn't just eke out wins. And this is why I say that if anything got a mandate, it was this. So, for example, in D.C., more than three-quarters of voters approved Initiative 81, declaring that the police shall treat non-commercial cultivation, distribute, uh, distribution, possession, and use of entheogenic plants and fungi. Now, this includes... Ibogaine, the thing that I was talking about earlier, uh, as well as a number of other uh, psychedelics such as dimethyltryptamine, mescaline, and psilocybin. And uh, it essentially makes them among the lowest uh, of law enforcement priorities. In Arizona, which had rejected recreational uh, cannabis legalization in 2016, uh, in 2020, 
voters were in favor 59.85%. And this is for full legalization compared to the uh, 40% who were against it. In New Jersey, uh, the uh, proposition favoring legalization, uh, excuse me, the proportion favoring legalization was even higher. It was 67% of voters in favor of legalizing recreational marijuana, 33% against. In South Dakota, 69% of people uh, approved of the medical marijuana measure. And uh, recreational marijuana in South Dakota was uh, about 53.4% in favor. Now, Montana saw uh, 57% of voters approve recreational marijuana legalization with Initiative 190. Meanwhile, in Mississippi, voters said yes to two medical marijuana measures, one allowing it for people with terminal illnesses and one for people with debilitating medical conditions. And the more liberal latter option, known as Initiative 65, saw 74% of voters in favor. Even Oregon's measures to decriminalize non-commercial possession of all drugs saw a sizable margin of victory. Nearly 59% of voters approved, with 80% of the precincts reported. Uh, nearly 56% of voters approved of Measure 109, which was the Silas Steben Services Act, which authorizes the Oregon Health Authority to start a program to permit licensed service providers to administer psilocybin mushrooms and fungi to individuals 21 years of age or older. Well, that is going to do it for today. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to Categorical Imperatives. Uh, if you want to take a moment and uh, subscribe to the channel so you always make sure that you find out when I have new shows coming out, you should do that. If you like the episode, hit the like button. If you have a comment, uh, let me know what you think. I, I genuinely like hearing back from you guys as much as possible on this. So let me know what you think. Did you agree? Uh, did you disagree? I, I, I really like being able to have conversations with you guys about these topics in the comment section. So please let me know what you thought. Uh, and then if you liked the video, if you would just take one moment uh, and think of one other person you know who would also like the video uh, and just send the link to them and, and just share it with them. And if you would help me grow the channel that way, uh, I would be so very grateful. And finally, uh, to address what I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the show with uh, the funding services, uh, essentially, at this point, um, things uh, with the social media sites are getting very iffy. And I don't think I make especially controversial content, but um, like when you have Ron Paul getting uh, uh, kicked off of Facebook, I, I mean, I love Ron Paul. So, I mean, my positions are very much in line with his. So, if he can get booted from mainstream social media... I see no reason why I couldn't get booted as well. So this is the big thing. What I want to do is I want to uh, invest in uh, this show uh, to uh, essentially uh, put up my own website, uh, get a domain name, 
uh, and start posting uh, archives of the show uh, online. And so that is all going to uh, require money every month to do. Uh, and I've got a couple other things that I like to do too as well. Uh, I've got some uh, hardware and software upgrades I would very much like to make that I just can't afford to do right now. Uh, that if you would be willing to uh, throw a couple bucks my way, uh, either, like I said, if you just want to do a one-time uh, donation of a couple bucks, you can do that. Or if you go to the paypal.me site, as you see the link up there, uh, you also have the option with them to do a uh, like a monthly donation schedule thing. Uh, so if you guys could do that uh, and help me out with this, I would really, really appreciate it. I, I want to be uh, in the best position possible to make sure I'm not caught off guard here uh, and that uh, if anything happens, I can still do the show and I can still reach you guys and you guys can reach me. You know where to find me. Uh, and I just, it, it, it'd be nice to have that kind of peace of mind. So um, yeah, anyways, I, I really, really want to thank you all for joining me here today on Categorical Imperatives. I've been Lockheed and Liberal. We've been talking about drugs. Uh, and as always, De Linda S. Carthago.